Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Albu Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my colleague Julia Joja with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University and Giselle Donnelly, also from the American Enterprise Institute. On our podcast, we talk about the challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Frederick Kagan, who runs um, AEI's Critical Threats Project. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Um, Fred, it's been a while since we did a military update on what is happening in Ukraine, and obviously the biggest event since since the last time we spoke uh, has been the withdrawal of Russian forces from around uh, Kiev, from the north, uh, which the Russians are selling as a gesture of goodwill towards the Ukrainians, notwithstanding the a trail of blood and civilian destruction and, and atrocities which they've left behind in on the in, in, in Kiev's uh suburbs. Uh so so perhaps that's the that's the appropriate place to start. What do you make of this Russian retreat? Uh how big of a threat does Russia still pose to to Ukraine's north? Uh and what are perhaps some of the underrated underexplored developments that 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 you think are important in the northern part of Ukraine. So Dalibor, the I would put it this way, the Ukrainians have won the battle of Kyiv. That's what actually happened. Uh, the Russians invaded along several axes and the Ukrainians defeated them. And I think the Russians found themselves in a situation where they could either watch as the Ukrainians continued to conduct counteroffensive operations that destroyed their forces piecemeal or attempt to withdraw in good order. They chose the latter. So they chose to try to withdraw in good order. And they adopted what, what looked like a theoretically doctrinally sound approach to that of setting up a screening force and then progressively pulling forces away and then trying to pull the screening force away uh, but in point of fact, they did not manage to withdraw in good order. Uh, the Ukrainians continued to press their counteroffensive, and we ended up with uh, Russian forces left behind, um, and the Ukrainians conducting what they very memorably characterized as a search for lost orcs in the Russian soldiers who were had just been left behind and abandoned by their colleagues. So it was quite a humiliating uh retreat uh, that the Russians opted for because they were facing um, a, a counteroffensive that was going to push them out. They are regrouping the forces that they pulled out from uh, around Kyiv, and they are also diverting such reinforcements as they have to prepare for operations in the east. They covered all of this with the announcement that they had accomplished their objectives in the West in good Soviet fashion um, and were now going to focus on the remaining objectives, which are securing the boundaries of Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast, which are claimed by the puppet uh, states that Russia invented and then recognized. Um, in truth, it is hard to tell 
how much combat power the Russians will be able to harvest from the forces that they ignominiously were compelled to withdraw from uh, around Kiev, because so many of those units were just wrecked and were effectively combat ineffective by the time the Russians withdrew them in ways that it will take a long time to reconstitute. I suspect that more than a few of the battalion tactical groups that the Russians have pulled back will need to be rebuilt from scratch. And that's a process that takes months and and years, honestly, if you're going to do it right. So nevertheless, uh, the Russians are diverting some forces that hadn't been too badly beat up to the east, and they are uh, attempting to accelerate their operations to get to the boundaries. At the same time, they are attempting to complete the seizure of Mariupol, a city which has held out uh, heroically far longer than I uh, or the team at the Institute for the Study of War that I work with, uh, or I think anyone would have expected and imposed, I think, fearful casualties on the Russians trying to take it. Um, And they've otherwise gone pretty quiescent in the other parts of uh, Ukraine for now. Um, I don't think that there is going to be a significant Russian ground forces threat to Kyiv again for a long time. Um, the Russians would have to pull out of the east, really, in order to generate the combat power that could threaten Kiev on the ground meaningfully again soon. Because just, just to say it again, I mean, the Russian forces that were sent in and, and got to the outskirts of Kiev and committed crimes against humanity uh, were themselves destroyed so badly that they are not just going to be able to spend a few weeks refitting them and then hurl them back at Kiev. That That is not something that can happen. Fred, if I could ask you to, to, to draw you out a little bit. I mean, this has been portrayed as kind of a McClellan-esque shifting of base uh, to eastern Ukraine. Um, what do you reckon that means in terms of how long we would, you know, it would how long would it take for anything to show up? And by just, again, looking at a map, it's, it's a long way from uh, the, the northern front to the eastern front, especially by rail, uh, you know, maybe six or 700 kilometers. And that doesn't even count getting to the railheads or, or from the railhead on the other end to the, to the front lines. So, if we're kind of in an operational pause, how long do you reckon that will last? And uh, when it's, how will we know when it's over? <laughs> well, it, it's an interesting question, how will we know when it begins? Because the Russians are continuing to throw good military practice to the winds and stomp on the military doctrine that they and others have written about how to do this kind of thing as if they hated it. Um, so they have continued. So there are a different forces from different parts of the battle space that they are trying to concentrate in the East. And they obviously that therefore come differentially in time. The first thing that they did was to take the remnants of the elements of the first guards tank army that had been drawn up around Kharkiv, um, for various purposes, including defending the base of the salient that went from Sumy toward Kiev. Uh, 
uh, a bunch of those battalion tactical groups were not that badly beat up and they just pulled them out of there and drove them uh, southeast to first to take Izum and then to try to continue the, the advance from Izum towards Slavyansk to ultimately hook up with the forces in Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, so they've already thrown, again, as if they're married to this approach, individual battalion tactical groups um, and got them ground down and stopped and stuff. So there's been a couple of days of operational pause in on the Izum axis as they've done that. The forces that are coming out of Belarus um, seem to be moving back to concentrate around Belgorod, which is becoming the principal Russian base of operations now that they've withdrawn, that they're basically giving up on Kyiv and are pulling their bases out from Belarus, it looks like. So they've, they are, we've lots of reports that forces have started to move to Belgorod and are arriving in Belgorod and they will work to rebuild them there. Um, but again, increasingly with the Russians, it's a question of you and what army, because they don't have large reservists who are really combat effective to throw into these units, even if that were a good idea, which it isn't. Um, so if they're going to try to get usable combat power, any of this stuff, I assume that they will do exactly what one shouldn't, which is to take individual companies or even platoons out of out of the wreckage and sort of cobble it together into some sort of ad hoc mess and then hurl it, you know, right down the chute toward Izum and, and try to just grind through. I think so. And look, I mean, there are lots of open questions here to like starting with are, is, are they going to do something that stupid to which I think the answer is yes. But the next more interesting questions are, are the Russian troops actually going to wear this? And the answer to that is it's very unclear. We have a lot of reporting from Ukrainian military intelligence and Ukrainian general staff of Russian troops refusing orders, of Russian officers refusing orders. Um, there was a whole unconfirmed incident of the, at least I haven't seen it confirmed. The last time I saw it, it had been unconfirmed. I don't know if it has been since that the Russians pulled the two sort of rump battalion tactical groups out of South Ossetia and sent, were going to send them in. And then the guys like got there and said, yet. <laughs> and so they were supposedly going to have to send them back. I don't, I, I haven't seen if that's confirmed or not, but that's consistent with a pattern that we've seen of Russian soldiers, you know, refusing orders. I would not want to have to be the captains and majors and lieutenant colonels telling the Eastern military district guys who just got geschwacked in front of Kiev. Now, I would, guess what? You want me to do what? <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see what they can actually, what they try to do and what they actually, especially since we're also seeing reports, by the way, the wonderful refit opportunity these guys have is to be intense in fields. Right. So that's going to, that's going to do tons for morale. So look, so who knows? I think in the real world that what's going to matter most is that the Russians have are redirecting the cats and dogs that they've been trying to find, that they had been going to hurl at Kiev. They are redirecting all of those cats and dogs reinforcements to the east. And we'll, we'll have to see what that turns into in terms of effective combat power. 
And the, you know, the concern is that they have, Russians have created a battlefield geometry in the East that is um, good for them to a point if they can close, if they actually can close the gap and take Slavyansk and then drive through Slavyansk and hook up, then they will have encircled, uh, you know, a big portion of the joint forces operation area. Now, I think it's important not to overstate the effect of that, because one of the things we've seen in this war is that the Russians' ability rapidly to reduce concentrations that they've encircled has been pretty limited. Yeah, the the encirclement of Kiev didn't exactly go well. That didn't happen. Well, okay, but it, they were they were close at one point, or some no, of them not, were close. Not, they never even okay, got well, that close. Don't don't give them more points than they earned. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to you know, yeah. Look, I mean, you have been pointing out the prospect, at least you know, sort of theoretically, of uh, the of the encirclement of Ukrainian forces in the east where their most seasoned um, uh, forces. Maybe so that, I mean, it's so just to come to a conclusion on this, how would you assess the Russian prospects um, uh, of that kind of decisive operation or, you know, even sort of operationally decisive maneuver? I... This, I mean, the Russians have behaved so anomalously in this war that I, I, you know, I don't have a, I never had a crystal ball, but if I did, I would have thrown it at the wall by now. Look, if you, if you look at the patterns we've seen hitherto, if the Russians throw enough weight at the problem in the kind of terrain that they're operating in, in the East, they will probably be able to close the gap. But they may or may not take the cities on the route. So I don't know whether they will take Slavyansk or bypass it. They really have struggled to take cities or take towns of that size. Um, but they may. Again, though, the Ukrainian for if Ukrainian forces are, are encircled, as I suspect they would be, because I don't think they will withdraw, they will not surrender. Um, so they will fight, and I presume that Ukrainian forces will fight to counter, you know, to, to relieve the encirclement. Going back to World War II history, um, which the Russians appear to have forgotten completely, um, you know, you know why the belt of encirclement around Stalingrad was so wide. It was to prevent the Germans from breaking it. Well, right now the Russians are operating on a very narrow front. To, it's not even a front. It's a pencil line yeah. uh, to try to encircle. Um, if I were them, I would not have any confidence in my ability to prevent the Ukrainians from uh, relieving that trapped force. So we could get into a situation where I think that the, the options are that the Russians just never managed to close this gap, which would be one fit one pattern. Option number two is that they close the gap, but they're not able to keep it closed and that we get into a big fight to relieve it. And option three is they close it and keep it closed and then are facing a Stalingrad style long effort to try to reduce, that is to say that what the Soviets did at Stalingrad, long effort to try to reduce the Ukrainian forces there and become pinned on that problem and unable to continue the advance. 
I think you're quite right to say that the encircling forces are operating on a very narrow front. They're going to have long lines of communication and thus supply challenges. But it also, you know, I can't imagine that uh, whatever the Ukrainians have sort of in and around Kiev and central Ukraine will be entirely passive. So the encirclers could be sticking their necks into a, a trap that has two sides to it, it seems to me. I mean, again, who knows what, you know, Ukrainian reserves are and what they're capable of doing and how they're capable of longer distance maneuver. But but it does seem like a at least a theoretical risk. Let me just add to that so that I can understand this better. Um, is it valid, Fred, to differentiate here between urban warfare and flatland, empty land warfare that we're facing in the scenario of encirclement in the east? And then, and then isn't the question also, I've recently seen uh, statements from the U.S. saying, oh, the Russians will need a while to regroup there and redeploy. So that gives us time to give the Ukrainians weapons. But isn't that then a matter of what kind of stuff we're giving them? Because short range is really useful in urban guerrilla warfare, but for the flat, empty lands in the Donbass and beyond in the east, that's going to be a problem. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to take I'd like to take both parts of that question separately because they're both really really good. Um, the Ukrainians are obviously have a decision point here, which is at what point are they comfortable enough with the security of Kiev to begin pulling any forces away from there? And the Russians are working to delay that in part by main, trying to maintain some force in Belarus as at least a nominal threat to Kyiv, um, that the Ukrainian to try to pin some Ukrainian forces um, around the capital. And I suspect the Ukrainians will be relatively slow to pull a lot of combat power away from Kyiv in the circumstances. Among other things, there's still a bunch of lost orcs running around and there's there are other things to, to have to secure against. So. I, I don't know where, or it's not obvious to me what kind of reinforcements the Ukrainians could get to the east in what kind of time frame. Um, but there are forces in the east that they could use um, to do this kind of thing. And that gets us to the question of timeline. So what you're hearing from the U.S. military is what a normal military would do which is a normal military would recognize that its strike force had been wrecked and that it takes months to reconstitute a unit that has been destroyed. And so therefore months will be required and the Russians need to scope down their immediate expectations while they reconstitute their force. But Vladimir Putin is a special person and he doesn't do things the way normal people do them. So I actually think that we're going to see something a bit different from that. And I think, you know, we've got these statements out there that this, you know, war is going to be over by Victory Day, which is May 5th, I think. May 9th? May 9th, is it? Yeah. I think so. I haven't, I don't keep track of Victory Day. Myself. I, I celebrate it on yeah, okay. an annual um, basis. Um, all I can say is Slava Ukraina. <laughs> but, um, you, you know, what does that really mean? 
I don't think the Russians are likely to have get to the Oblast boundaries by May 9th, honestly. I'd be really surprised. So here's what I'm worried about. What I'm worried about is that we get to Victory Day and the Russians declare that wherever they've gotten to is exactly where they always meant to get to. And they offer a ceasefire. And with every intention of doing what Russians do with ceasefires, which is abuse them, break them at a time of their choosing, and then launch new aggressions. And I am worried that the world, which loves ceasefires, will fall for this trap again, even though it is it really is becoming Charlie Brown and the football with Putin and ceasefires. Um, but I'm worried about that. And so I feel a tremendous sense of urgency to get the Ukrainians the systems that they need. And what are those systems? So the, what the Ukrainians need to do is liberate their country as quickly as possible. Why? Bucha. Look, the revelations of what's been going on in Bucha did not surprise me. We've known that this kind of stuff was going on. It surprised a lot of other people who were not following this, and that's and I understand that, but I'm not, this didn't surprise me but it's gripping the world as it darn well should. But here's the thing, what's going on in Bucha or what went on in Bucha is a drop in the bucket compared to what is going on in Mariupol and Kherson and Luhansk generally and all of the areas that the Russians are occupying where they are doing something which they call filtratia, filtering. Which, which appears to mean, especially as we see the reports coming out of Bucha, that the Russian soldiers, you know, go and grab people. They take all of the males and they look for tattoos that they don't like. And if there are tattoos that they don't like, they just execute them. We've got mass rapes going on, which I suspect are the result of indiscipline. I'm not, I don't, haven't seen evidence that there was an order to do that in any particular way, but there's, it is criminally negligent in discipline at the, at the least. And I'm using all of those words advisedly. Um, and the, just the deliberate targeting of civilians and civilian infrastructure for various purposes, as well as the forced relocation of populations and forced conscription of populations in occupied areas. This is going on at a scale far beyond what we've seen in Bucha in the occupied areas. And so to me, that means that it is not only a national security imperative, but a moral and ethical imperative to give the Ukrainians everything they need to liberate their country as quickly as possible, because that is the only way that we will be able to stop or that they will be able or anyone will be able to stop these atrocities. So that means that the Ukrainians need the forces that a mechanized military requires to conduct a counteroffensive operation at scale. And that's beyond exactly as you say, that is beyond short range shoulder fired air defense systems. It's beyond defensive systems altogether. It's tanks, it's armored personnel carriers, artillery, small arms, mountains of ammunition, logistics, trucks, Humvees. And some of this stuff is going. There are, you know, there are tanks that are, that are moving from Eastern European countries. You know, I gather that we're sending Humvees and stuff, which is great but it's not fast enough, it's not enough. And this is what I'm worried about, is that we will get to a situation where the Ukrainians have not been able to liberate enough of their country and Putin puts out a ceasefire and we fall for it and put pressure on the Ukrainians and slow down our provision of supplies. 
And then we end up leaving large numbers of Ukrainians subject to the ongoing atrocities that will only continue and get worse. Now, before you have to go, we want to we want to touch upon that too while having you here the south a while ago you were explaining that um the troops that were coming from crimea were the better ones the better organized units and um and then maybe we can connect it to maritime what is going on in the black sea um in terms of um the presence of ships how they're um they're used um to attack um ukrainian territory and then maybe as a bit of a stretch we've seen reports yesterday from the president of moldova how um the airport in Tiraspol is being prepared by the russians um in detail so going back to the eternal the eternal discussion on what is happening from the south how do you assess right now as opposed to um maybe a couple of weeks ago the chances in odessa um and what what does it all mean also in terms of long range bombing from the black sea into uh, into western ukraine what are the most important things that you're watching for, we should be watching for, and what are the biggest risks here? So I th actually think that Odessa is safe from invasion uh, in the foreseeable future because the Ukrainians stuffed the Russian efforts to get across the southern Boog River, um, and I don't think the Russians have the, the capability to, to do that in strength at this point. And that the Russians, that I think the Russians have shown that they agree with that assessment because they appear to have committed the naval infantry that would have done an amphibious landing around Odessa to the fight for Mariupol, where they've gotten ground up pretty badly. So I don't think the Russians actually have the capability to conduct a plausible um, large-scale attack on Odessa city on the ground. Um, I'm very alarmed by what we're hearing um, about Moldova not because I think it necessarily will pose a big risk to Odessa. I think that's the purpose. I think the intent of the, what the Russians are doing is to probably airlift you know, reinforcements there to pose a threat to Odessa. And the Russians might even be stupid enough to imagine that they could somehow take Odessa from, from Transnistria, um, which will fail if they try, but they've tried stupid things before. What I'm concerned about is that the, the West needs to start um, yelling very loudly about how completely unacceptable it would be for the Russians to involve Moldova in this war from the territory that the Russians are illegally occupying in Moldova and turning that into a theater of war. And we need to think about what our collective responses to that would be and what we're going to do for Moldova in that circumstance. Um, that's the main reason why I'm alarmed about this. I think it's intended to pin Ukrainian forces around Odessa now that there's no plausible threat from the sea of an invasion. But I think the implications are, are much larger than that. On that specific point, like what, what do you think is keeping, say, the US government or the UK government from sending at the invitation of the Moldovans themselves, you know, a small group of troops to Moldova to do joint exercises or, or just to sort of plant the flag in the, in the, in the sand to make sure that I have no oh, idea. That, that would be escalatory. For, for no, one, no. also Moldova doesn't have an army, so I don't know who to train. I think these are great questions to put to the White House. 
I, I think these are great questions to put to the White House about what are we going to do to secure Moldova in this case if uh, if uh, its president were to request, I'm sorry, its prime minister, since its president certainly won't, but if its prime minister were to request such a thing, um, what what should we, you know, what would we do? Hey, yes. Fred, we got just a quick few seconds left before you got to go, but I want to give you an opportunity to sort of sum up where we are in, in two cents. It does seem to me that, uh, you know, although we've had a lot of sort of, uh, you know, turning point moments in the, certainly in the battle for Kiev and in the war, it does seem like we're at yet another one. So, you know, just in, in a, a short way, what, what, what would you, how would you sum it up for our listeners? Look, the good news is that the Ukrainians have won the Battle of Kyiv. The survival of Ukraine as a state with its capital at Kyiv is no longer in imminent danger. The survival of Ukraine as a state remains in great danger because if the, if the lines freeze in anything like their current configuration, um, Kyiv, this, this Kyiv as a functional country will be so seriously injured that it will need to be on life support. And furthermore, it will be under the threat of the renewal of Russian aggression at a moment of Putin's choosing uh, from positions that are much better for Putin than those from which he has launched this last attack. So there's it's good news and bad news so far. The momentum is was briefly with the Ukrainians. It's now it's a bit of a jump ball. It's just a bit of a jump ball here. Um, we should be doing everything that we can to put our finger on the scale for the Ukrainians and try to allow, give the Ukrainians the ability to create momentum in their favor and help them reconquer their territory from the Russians, especially in the South, um, even as they defend the East. And the Ukrainians are conducting counteroffensives in Kherson Oblast, which is important, and they need to do more because the, that's one of the things that will make Ukraine as a country very hard to survive. But the, the thing is that we've got a moment of inc- another moment of incredible moral clarity here that we just mustn't lose sight of. And, you know, we're very accustomed when we're interacting with these, these atrocities to see them in the past tense, because that's usually when we really discover them. And that's important. And accountability is important. And bringing people to justice is important, even if you can't put them in jail. But... We have a lot of atrocities in the future tense here. And this needs to be a Srebrenica moment for us, not in the sense that we need to intervene and deploy troops because the Ukrainians are fighting, but in the sense that we need to gird our loins and say, okay, we have to give the Ukrainians everything they need now to stop the future tense atrocities that will otherwise occur as as long as Russian as long as Russian troops continue to occupy Ukrainian territory. And this, this, this is a moment of moral clarity. It should also become a moment of policy clarity. And I hope that it will. Amen. Well, we certainly share that hope. Uh, but I'll you know, believe it when I see it. I mean, it's, 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 it is really frightening to sort of, you know, look at the German government where the do-gooders can't bring themselves to, you know, a natural gas and oil embargo on Russia, even in the wake of of this evidence from from Bucha and elsewhere. But Fred, thank you so much for for joining us today. 
was a real pleasure catching up with you. Um, from Dalbur Haj, Julia Zoja and Giselle Donnelly. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to the security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. And many thanks to our special guest today, Fred Kagan. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website at AI.org, um, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us with, on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you and goodbye.